Hello and welcome to Security by the Book, a monthly podcast series from the Hoover Institution's Working Group on National Security, Technology, and Law. In this episode, Task Force Co-Chair and Brookings Institution Senior Fellow Ben Wittes interviews Walter Pincus about his essay, Reflections on Secrecy and the Press from a Life in Journalism, and it was recorded on July 20th, 2016. Uh, this is a, a I got to say, a, a, maybe if I'd thought about it, I would have expected it, but as it happens, a sort of unexpectedly like emotional little moment for me, because um, Walter and I worked together for nine or ten years at the Washington Post. When he talks in this paper about going to law school uh, in the middle of working for the Washington Post and writing these, these papers, he would walk into my office and, you know, and uh, ask me if I'd read a draft of his paper about Brandsburg. And then you know, these papers would show up. And so I, I actually like, like have a sort of weird kind of personal, um, uh, a lot of personal memories associated with, with the paper that Walter's going to talk about tonight. Um, and moreover, um, uh, this was a uh, really interesting thing for me to watch because, you know, Walter was at the time that I was, uh, I think I was probably 27 or 28 at the time and had, was almost insanely had been asked to write editorials on legal affairs for the Washington Post. And Walter was one of these people who I'd known about you know, my whole adult life, which was frankly short at the time. <laughs> and, um, and he was, um, I, I don't know, I, I'll, I'll let him, maybe if he feels like it, say what his age was at the time. But he was you know, going back to law school um, while working full time at the Washington Post. And so um, there's an um, amazing embedded story in, in the subtext and between the lines in this uh, essay about uh, somebody who, among other things, never stopped learning and never stopped sort of thinking for himself. Um, and one of the interesting things about this, this paper, and frankly, what I want to focus on tonight, is uh, thoughts that Walter has on national security reporting that are, is it safe to say, way outside the mainstream of, <laughs> of national security reporters, right? Um, so I want to start with a quotation from this essay. Um, and this is the first, uh, it's first one of these book soirees we've ever done that isn't about a book. Um, and, uh, and so I, you know, I don't want to be too apologetic about that, because this is a really neat essay, and you should all read it. Um, but um, I want to start with, 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 with the following quotation from it. Um, it was 45 years ago when I learned how arbitrary the nation's classification system was. Many real secrets obviously needed to be kept, but individuals could disagree about information on the margins. And when you got to those gray areas, which included information about bad decisions and failures, it was safer for officials to classify since no one was penalized for overclassifying. It was a lesson I never forgot and one that guides many national security journalists. But another lesson has stuck with me from that experience, a lesson that I fear some of my fellow journalists neglect. Symington's encounter with Rogers was predicated on the principle 
that individuals must make reasoned judgments about the exposure of national security secrets, must take responsibility for those decisions, and must face whatever consequences might follow. So I want to start, Walter, by asking you just to describe what's the difference between your attitude toward being a national security reporter and the obligations that that involves and what you would describe as the sort of mainstream view of national security reporters? Uh, well, I think like everything, it comes out of experience. And um, what led into that section and what was uh, a really seminal education uh, for me was that when I was about the same age as you were when you were writing editorials. I had written a magazine piece on foreign government lobbying for the Reporter magazine, which doesn't exist anymore, and, and pointing out how the Foreign Agent Registration Act wasn't working. And uh, I always get nervous saying dates because it ages me. But um, this was 1960. And I was 28 years old, and Senator Fulbright, who was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, called up and said, uh, you've written the Foreign Agent Registration Act's not working. Uh, the committee is interested in it. Would you take 18 months, come to the committee, run an investigation, uh, and change the law? And he put it just like that, change the law. Uh, and a bunch of us, when we went into journalism, wanted to change things. I mean, that's why we went into journalism. Uh, so having written a piece that showed the law wasn't working, and I was sort of fancy free at the time, uh, I agreed, which began in 1962, to uh, take 18 months. I was writing for three North Carolina papers and writing magazine pieces. Uh, and work for the committee and run an investigation. And I had been reporting for five years or so, and I found out within days how little a reporter knew about what was really going on. And also how much was being done to affect how reporters covered things. Uh, so that was the beginning of the education. Uh, I work, it, it's, it's so different from today, I mean, I hate to divert, but it, it affects the way I look at things today. The investigating subcommittee was two Republicans and two Democrats. It was Chairman Fulbright, John Sparkman, uh, who were Demo the Democratic side, and uh, Hickenlooper of Iowa uh, and George Aiken of Vermont. And every decision of the investigation, which was very controversial because we went into 10 lobbyists, every uh, decision was unanimous. Um, the staff of the investigating subcommittee, which is so totally different today, was myself and a lawyer, just the two of us. And 
if you investigated for Fulbright, you spent six months investigating. No hearings, no nothing. At the end of six months, you wrote a memo that said, here's what we found. You presented him with amendments to the law, which you wanted to change, and a, and a schedule of hearings of who you were going to call, and each witness was picked because he affected one of the amendments. And you had to do all that in the first six months, and then the next 12 months, it took us to pass, <laughs> hold the hearings and pass the law. It's just a totally different thing than today. When it was over, Fulbright said he wanted to have a permanent investigating committee and would I stay, and I wouldn't. I went back to journalism, but I promised to come back in five years because it, while I was still there, he and I both got interested in the PR operation of the Pentagon. He was having trouble with the military. He was, the Vietnam War was just beginning, and he was crossways with the military. and. And so we, um, it, it also taught me the amazing power of a senator, because just by writing questions to the Pentagon, we developed a whole series of information about the Pentagon PR operation, how many people they had, what they were doing, and all the rest of it. He ended up writing a book, or getting somebody to write a book called Pentagon Propaganda Machine. But he also said, would you come back, and come back in five years, and uh, run an investigation of the military involvement in foreign policy. And so five years later, in 1969 and 70, uh, I went back under the same, I agreed not to write about it, but I also agreed I wouldn't deal with the press. I think one of the great things press people ought to do is go into government to see how it works. Because what you find out is that most people in government, 98%, are trying to do the right thing. And, and it's a very tough job. Uh, but we write about it thinking we know what's going on, and the fact is we don't. But uh, it was in the second time when I did the same deal, six months of investigation. And then we wrote the First Amendments that limited the war the Laos-Thailand Amendments, and then Cooper Church. Uh, but it was also four members and a staff of two of us investigated the military around the world. Uh, and I found out a lot that I didn't know. But also found out it, the same thing was true. People were trying to do the right thing. Uh, and that how complicated government was. And the next piece of education about the complexity that you don't know about uh, came when, uh, in the Nixon administration, I covered Watergate for the, at, at that time I was executive editor of the New Republic and wrote columns for the Post for Meg Greenfield. Uh, trying to have details of Watergate. When Richard Nixon left office and his records became government records, the first time anybody, at least in my mind, really saw what went on in the White House. 
uh, and you saw how complex the White House was. And, and, and every, every year since, when I talk to people who cover the White House for the Post, I say, go to any presidential library and just read some of the records to see what's going on. Because, I mean, starting with Reagan, you think the president's done one thing that day because that's when he appeared or whatever happened. But the fact is, he's just busy all day doing all sorts of things. The, I always use an example. If Richard Nixon was having a, a White House dinner, the file of who's going to be invited and who isn't and why is about four inches thick because everybody in the staff has their own person they think ought to be invited and there were reasons for it and, and it, it, it's just stunning to think about that. So, but I want to focus on the question of how your attitude differs from that of conventional, of most other national security It's because reports. I went through this experience, because I saw what was really going on and, and saw even within, I mean, I was the second investigation, everybody had to cooperate. Uh, Fulbright, who was very clever, made Stuart Syming, who was ranking on armed services, chairman of the subcommittee, because Symington uh, was a great favorite of the Pentagon and knew everybody. And he also was on the subcommittee of appropriations that kept track of the agency. So every place we went, everybody cooperated. And what I did was send a series of questions out to every country uh, before I went there. And, and then they would give me a schedule and then I'd change the schedule and work all day. But uh, the point was, I was developing so much information by, we went to Europe first, then we went to the Far East. By the time we went to the Far East, <clears throat> Kissinger, who was National Security Advisor, made everybody we talked to record the interview because we had developed so much information the first time around that he never knew. So I just learned how much goes on and learned what was important and what wasn't important. And, and that's affected everything. So one of the things you've concluded from that is that the almost universal demands on the part of the press for uh, a shield law that shields oh, reporters from the obligations to testify in criminal investigations is wrong-headed. Uh, so tell us why. why. Why you're the, as far as I know, you're the only national security reporter around who, who does not feel immune from the subpoena of, of a criminal investigation and has uh, not uh, moved to quash when, when you've in fact been subpoenaed. So uh, how, does, how does that view flow from what you just described? Uh, it really is based on law school. Uh, I, I, went, I started law school when I was 62. Uh, my 
both my parents lived in 95, and the, everybody retired from the post at 70. It was when Ben Bradley retired, when Kay retired. And so I thought I'd have to retire at 70, and I need something to do. <laughs> and I'd covered trials and all the rest of it, and sort of liked the law. So I went to law. Georgetown thought I was kidding. And so I took one course the first year and two the second in summer school. It took me six years. As I sit here, I still think I'm the oldest person to graduate from Georgetown Law School. But it was a great experience. I think everybody would go mid-career, because I had the advantage of being older than almost every professor. And that's a great help. But uh, I wrote papers like crazy. And one of the papers I wrote was uh, attorney-client privilege after death. And so I studied all the privileges. Uh, and everybody else, all the privileges, lawyer, priest, penitent, doctors, all came out of judicial opinions. And uh, since Brandsburg, everybody's tried to get a uh, sort of shield law for the press by law and hired lobbyists, which of course we hate other people hiring lobbyists, but we love lobbyists to do this. Um, but I think it convinced me that we like a, we're like any other citizen. I mean, the idea that we wrap ourselves in the First Amendment to me is just wrong. So hang on a second. Let me let me. So I, I hear like a thousand people, uh, their inner ACLU lawyer saying, "Wait a minute, the." The, the journalist is different from everybody else. The journalist has a, has a public function, has an informative function. Uh, yeah, Brandsburg says there's no privilege, but you know, the privilege kind of came to be honored in a lot of less than entirely uh, legally mandated ways. And why should a journalist uh, say investigating Wen Ho Lee not take advantage when you know when subpoenaed to testify about that. Why should you not do? Uh, why should you not claim a, 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 the ability not to show up in front of a grand jury? Well, this is a 50-50 deal, and if you look at it my way, the uh, it's the source that's getting the privilege. How do you mean that? Break that down. Because it's, well, I've had the experience of half or more than half of my, quote, confidential sources either gave me wrong information or only knew part of the story uh, or are trying to get back at some boss. And the law is protecting them. And, and, and they pay so, no penalty. So hang on, break it down. How is the law protecting them when you assert a privilege? Because you don't give it. They, some of them have literally committed what could be a crime. And they're breaking an oath. Uh, it, it's and it goes on. I mean, it's not as if it doesn't go on. So okay, so so let's take the Wen Ho Lee case. And for those of you who don't remember this, Wen Ho Lee was a, a U.S. scientist uh, accused of uh, uh, suspected of mis uh, uh, purloining uh, classified material at Los Alamos. 
and um, Walter was, uh, shall we say, wrapped up in that matter. Uh, and was called to testify before a grand jury. Uh, no, sorry, no. in a civil case. I'm civil sorry. Case. Uh, and uh, unlike other reporters who were similarly called, Walter showed up. So uh, walk me through what the mechanism was, what, what other reporters did, and what you did. Well, the other reporters in the hands of First Amendment lawyers moved to quash on the idea you can't subpoena me because I'm a journalist. And uh, the fact of the matter is because I, by that it was less than a year after, I got two subpoenas within a year of graduating law school. <laughs> and never had a subpoena before. Uh, and I also had the benefit of having a son who's a great lawyer and who listened to me, so, because uh, I post thought I was crazy. Uh, but it, it, uh, I just think you go, I went, I answered what my name was, and then I answered some questions that had no relationship to, or could lead to where my source was, or who my source, actually, there were six but everybody thought that was one. Uh, and, uh, but when it was anything that came close to uh, a stepping stone, and, and I'd gone to law school, stepping stone to where you could go to a source, um, I took the First Amendment 125 times. Uh, it made you sympathetic to all the people in the McCarthy period. But it, um, I think you've got to show up. Okay, so, but, 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 but I'm, so I'm going to play the skeptic well, well, here. Well, let me do the other part of it. Wen-Ho Lee was not some innocent figure. Right. Wen-Ho Lee took highly classified tapes, which, because they weren't stamp classified, because you can't stamp tapes, uh, had, a, had a very clever lawyer who made an issue out of that. But the fact is, he did take them, and, it's, and nobody's ever found them. He did transfer them, took them out of Los Alamos. He is a person who, without telling his bosses, worked for the Taiwanese equivalent of Los Alamos for a summer and got paid for it. I mean, he is not some innocent. He was handled badly, which got great sympathy. Okay, so hang on. I, I say that's the, you got to show up is a neat principle of citizenship. Mm -hmm. but, but if I'm looking at it from the point of view of a prosecutor, and I've got two journalists, one of whom says, um, I, don't, um, I don't have to respond to the subpoena. I moved to quash. I don't have to show up, testify at the grand jury. And the other of whom says, oh, I'll show up. I just won't answer the key questions that you care most about. Right. I, I'm not sure I see like a huge difference between the two. I so what, what, what's the difference between your vision of the reporter's privilege and the vision that the Post would have wanted you to take? Because I think it, it, the other part of my view is 
which happened in uh, the Valerie Plain case, in the Scooter Libby case. Yeah, let's come to that in a moment. Is that a reporter has to think twice before he prints what's confidential or could be classified information. And he's, to me, if somebody gives you classified information and you go ahead and print it, they're protected, you're protected. If it's an honest source, that person is endangering his career and to some degree is endangering himself uh, in the law. And I think a journalist ought to think about those things, have to think about it, before he just publishes something, because there's got to be a good reason to publish it, other than look what I found, or look what somebody told me. Okay, so, but why does that mean show up and, as you say, take the first, rather than just testify? You know, you, 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 have, a, you have a source who gave you something maybe in violation of the law. The grand jury wants to know about it. Why is your relationship with the grand jury different from any other citizen who's not a journalist? If it's it, not. Well, except, except that you're not telling them the answer to the question that well, they want to know. Well, the other citizen can plead the fifth. Well, not if they haven't done, you know, not if they're not. Well, no, they can plead it if they want. Isn't, but I mean, I, what I take from your, the distinction you draw in your paper which you're not drawing now. Um, so I'm going to draw it for you. Uh, what I take there is that you're saying you're willing to take the consequences. Mm -hmm. Whereas the... I think you should. Whereas the journalist who refuses to show up is asking for an exemption from the consequences. Right. So you're saying, I'm not going to tell you the name of my source. If you want to hold me in contempt and put me in jail, go ahead. You're nodding. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I mean, it's, I mean, I thought in the Wenho Lee case where I was found in contempt. And, and, and did you think that, just, just to be clear, so you were found in contempt in Wenho Lee, they stayed it, and as I recall, the case settled in the meantime. Is right. that right? The case settled in part because the other journalists had taken it to the Supreme Court and got turned down. And at that point, both the government and the papers always wanted to settle. So did you think it was unjust that you were held in contempt? Was that a problem, or was that just like a natural consequence I, of I, your line of work? But this goes to my feeling about the case. Wen Ho Lee's case was that his privacy was violated by this leak of information. And the chain of his thinking was Yes, I did it, but I wouldn't have been prosecuted if they hadn't written about it. And he pled guilty. So he pled guilty to a felony, and he's claiming it's the leak invaded his privacy. And I was, I still would have loved taking that one to, care, to court. So, okay. I so don't think he should have been paid anything. So, but does your obligation as a reporter in that situation depend on the merits of the case? Well, no. I published the information. Right, but I mean, I mean, if, if he doesn't, you know, if, if he turns out, you, you publish the information not knowing whether he was 
the worst guy in the world or, uh, or I published it because I was totally convinced that what the that the allegations were true and they turned out to be true okay so does it matter if they turn out to be true from your point of view it does enormous so there's a there's a heavy normative bias here as in as in if the person in question is is a genuine like if the information is important you're willing to take risk that you're not necessarily willing to take under other circumstances well i'm willing i'm taking a risk publishing classified information the person who gave it to me is taking a risk. I think we, the journalists, ought to have an equal risk. So this is a very unusual view. Yeah. Um, and walk us through how it plays out in the Plame case. Well, in the Plame case, uh, I, I wrote a story about, uh, I mean, it's a complicated case. I'm trying to think of how to get there quickly. It's, it's essentially, I wrote a story, uh, Joe Wilson, Valerie Plame's husband, was sent by CIA to uh, find out if, if Saddam Hussein was buying yellow cake from uh, Africa. And it was part of President Bush's claims and uh, Wilson had, had gone and come back and in effect said no. And uh, the White House was saying yes. And so I published a, story, a blind story because at that point Joe Wilson didn't want to be identified. Uh, finally he went public. The White House put on uh, what I what I came to feel was a uh, damage control uh, and passed out to four or five reporters uh, on background that um, it was a kind of, the way it was done by Ari Fleischer to me, the White House press secretary, was why are you writing about this? Don't you know it was set up by his wife and it was supposed to help his career? Uh, and I listened to it and let it go. And then it, Bob Novak wrote it in a column. And uh, it became a cause celeb because of the law identifying a, a CIA employees undercover. And uh, I sort of let it go until uh, they announced a special prosecutor. And at that point, I wrote a story about how a Washington Post reporter had been approached and, and told the same thing, and it ended up getting me a subpoena. Uh, and, and when I was subpoenaed, uh, I'd already had this kind of Wenho Lee record. <laughs> and, but this is a criminal case. And so, I thought of it as a criminal case, and and my my lawyer, my son, thought of it as a criminal case, and everybody else thought of it as a First Amendment case. 
uh, and so we got into a discussion with the prosecutor, Pat Fitzgerald, and, and made it clear to him that if my source came forward and admitted to the phone call uh, to him, that I would testify, but other than that, I wouldn't. Now, so your view, again, was that you had an obligation to show up. You would not answer questions that impinged your responsibility to your source, but you were willing to take whatever consequences. You weren't asking for a privilege in that situation. Yeah. So, a couple questions. First of all, did, was Pat Fitzgerald behaving reasonably? Was, was that a He did with me, yeah. So, so you think it's, it's perfectly reasonable for a federal prosecutor in a leak investigation to say, hey, I know who knows who leaked this to Walter Pincus. Let's haul Walter Pincus in front of a grand jury. That, no, he that, didn't know. He had a pretty good idea. No, he didn't. No? No, he thought it was, he thought it was Libby. I was handed Libby's waiver. And would I accept it? And I said no, because you could hand me a waiver everywhere else and then figure out who it was. So I turned down the waiver. But meanwhile, he had two or three other people who moved to Quash, and they were the move to Quash people always get hit first. So <laughs> I was sort of left. <laughs> I mean, I was willing to talk to him, but I, I said, you know, I'm not going to tell you. So, so okay, so. But, but, but you don't have a problem with the way he behaved. Fitzgerald? Yeah. He's got a job. He had, well, I wrote it in this thing. People don't understand. Uh, they, the, the, the main story is, well, Armacost came forward and he told Novak, so why was Fitzgerald investigating? Fitzgerald was investigating because before he was put in charge, the reason that he was uh, the special prosecutor got set up was because the FBI already had a conflict between Tim Russert and Scooter Libby before anything happened. And that's why a special prosecutor put in, because somebody from the White House was involved. You can't lie to the FBI. They go 1,001 is their favorite thing. All right, so Walter. I got to say, like, you know, you know, Lawfare is unusually positioned here because we're <laughs> probably the only publication that writes on national security issues regularly that has an active policy of not publishing classified information. Um, and so we are, you know, I'm not going to be the one to say, you know, your attitude here is wrong. But... I do look at it and I say, you're describing national security reporting as an exceedingly dangerous business. Should be. be. Because you, <laughs> it should be. Because okay. you're saying on the one hand, you have an obligation to go out there. The government's wildly overclassifying stuff. And you have an obligation to go out there and get stuff that's in the national interest for the public to know. You have an obligation to report that. Um, and then you should regard yourself as in exactly the same position as any other citizen when you're called in a leak investigation or, for that matter, a civil litigation between, between two parties to say where you got that information and you should be prepared to go into contempt and to jail and to get fined large amounts of money 
if you don't comply with the subpoena, if you don't answer questions, which, by the way, you're obliged not to do. And so my question is, why haven't you spent more time in prison? Um, and, um, and is there really no, isn't what we're asking of the national security reporter an irrational conflict of things that we have to have some out for, some, some way to relieve the pressure in the valve? Well, or is if, it just if like I tough never, luck? If I had never published classified information that had impact, maybe you'd be right. But I wrote the first story about the neutron. I mean, it got, it got the defense secretary to come in to see Bradley. Uh, but nobody prosecuted because what I wrote was true. And the public should have known about it. Uh, I wrote early stories about there not being uh, WMD in Iraq, which got a lot of people unhappy. I mean, I've written a whole bunch of stories that people in government didn't like, but I wasn't prosecuted. Yeah, but, but, but my question is, aren't you asking too much of the national security reporter? No. You're saying not only do you have an obligation to go out and get these stories, but you have an obligation not to assert that you're differently situated from any other citizen when you do, and that you should, you should face the music uh, when you get a subpoena and smile and not answer questions and go to jail. That seems like a, like a tall order you're but, asking of people. You know, except for Judy Miller, who did it because she wanted it, who's gone to jail? I mean, the sensitivity of the press is just enormous. I mean, I'll turn it around and, and use the two I use in the article. I mean, what's his name, Rosen, publishing uh, stuff without even giving the government a chance to answer to it. And it was not a whistleblower. This was not something that did good, um, is one case. Uh, and the guy, the ex-FBI guy, the whole thing going on in aid in uh, the bomber that they disclosed, or didn't disclose the bomber, they disclosed a CIA operation that was underway, and they had to stop, was not this, a is whistleblower. Jim, this is Jim Risen. Jim, no, the Risen case is another case, which is the, you know, the whole question about the Iran operation and was it working or not working. But these are cases in which he was, I think, there's still, you know, hasn't been cleared up yet. But the information that Risen got was the subject of testimony in court, and, and the leaker was convicted. And the theory of Risen's story was this was a failed operation. Well, when he wrote about it, it wasn't a failed operation. But if you believe the indictment, the person who gave him the information gave him wrong information, knowing it was more tempting to show that something wasn't working than something was. So that's, you know, we have a responsibility. 
So what do you say, so, so we have a responsibility is something that if he were sitting here, I, I hesitate to speak for him, but if he were sitting here, I think Glenn Greenwald would agree with. But he would disagree with you about what the nature of the responsibility I is. I disagreed with him so much. <laughs> I mean, he, he would say, we, meaning the national, national security reporters, have an obligation to what he calls adversarial journalism. And adversarial journalism means uh, I, uh, I try to prove that you're lying, you the government, and you the, the big powerful entity. And I try to prove, uh, and I try to get the information that you don't want the public to know and try to publish it. Um, for you, what reason? You seem to have the attitude that you that I, we have a responsibility involves a responsibility to protect legitimate government interests. And legitimate I, I, government secrets, yes. We're citizens like everybody else. So, okay, so how does a lot of people in this audience who are, you know, government employees of one sort or another, current or former, this is, you know, music to their ears to have a, a reporter say we have a responsibility to protect legitimate government secrets. How does a reporter who hasn't worked for Senator Fulbright, who hasn't done investigations on behalf of the federal government, who hasn't been walked in the shoes of the government operatives and uh, uh, lawyers and practitioners who, uh, how does that person know what a legitimate secret is versus what is simply, and by your own account, uh, in a gross system of overclassification, what's surplus classified material that the public should know about? Well, I, I mean, this to me is, goes to how journalistic institutions work. And uh, I, I have been lucky enough to work for the Post long enough so that all this experience uh, taught me to di make different decisions. I mean, it's you, I mean, there is no single standard for what's classified. Everybody agrees to that. It's a very arbitrary system. And uh, it's just my own hope. It, what, what you're proving and what I'm saying is we're all different. I mean, there are no rules in journalism. Um, everybody is a freelancer when it comes to their own ethics and what they believe in. And uh, I mean, our, today I would print things that people who work for Fox would never print. So, you know, who knows? And I'm sure people who work for other organizations would print things that I wouldn't print. So we all make that kind of decision. There's the, the thing about journalism is that it's free. I mean, it's the beauty about this country. You don't have to agree with me. Um, and I think, but I think journalism is, a, this is another argument I get into. It's a profession, it's not a trade. And, and you know, you, you have to deal with it as a profession. And there aren't a hell of a lot of national security reporters, but I would bet you if you had the ones who've done it for more than 10 years, which I think probably you ought to do, um, 
a lot of them would agree with me. So when you look around, I want to ask sort of two questions about your assessment of the scope of the profession now. When you look around and you say, who's doing it right? Um, who are the national security journalists that you look at and you say, quite apart from whether they would assert reporters' privilege in response to a subpoena, who are the national security journalists that you would say, you'd say their, their values and mine are roughly consonant and I, when I read something that they decided to put in, their, in the paper, I say the fact that their name is on it is a reasonable, is, is a good proxy for me to know that the right value judgments were, were at least considered and made in deciding to publish that piece of information. It's, I mean, I'd be a fool to answer that. What you have to understand, I've had a unique kind of career, and I know it. Um, I've never been a beat reporter. I mean, when I joined the Post, Ben Bradley just, in effect, said, go out and write. And as long as you turned up stories and all the rest of it, he left me alone. So um, I don't have a Pentagon press pass. I've never had a White House. I've never been to a White House press brief. I've been to a press briefing. I've never been to a press conference. I mean, my what, what I was told and what I've always tried to do is work on my own and, and find out information that I thought was important uh, and publish it. And what I found going back to when I did the foreign lobby is that there are huge records in this town that nobody looks at. I mean, the first big story I ever had in my life was, was going into the clerk of the house's office in, in the 50s, when if you traveled as a member of the house and put in for an expense account, there was a cover sheet and then the hotel bill and the travel bill and all were pasted together. You got paid, the member got paid, and it was pasted in a big notebook. And they were all stored in an open closet in the House of Representatives clerk's office. And nobody had ever gone in there. And so I went in and looked at it, and the first thing I found was that if you looked at a hotel <laughs> and a, a member was traveling, it would be uh, Congressman and Mrs. So-and-so, except Mrs. was crossed out. Crossed out right there. And then if, if when you got the hotel bill, and it, it said liquor, that was crossed out and said food. <laughs> I mean, it just, it was all there. And so I wrote about it for these North Carolina papers and nothing happened. And then Don Oberdorfer, who was working for another North Carolina paper and I, during a, a uh, filibuster, <laughs> and Don didn't have anything to do, and I was writing for these little papers. And, and so we put together a long collection of more than just that and the Senate and every, and they were all doing it. And uh, we wrote a long magazine, long piece, and went to Izzy Stone, who was the guru for all us 20-year-olds in those days, 
And Izzy Stone said, take it to Life magazine. And so we took the bus to New York because Don's friend had just gone to work for Ralph Graves, who was the managing editor of Life. Went to see Don's friend, gave him the thing, he vanished. It was, it was like 11 in the morning. And we sat there for another hour and a half, 12.30, and Ralph Graves walked in, managing editor of Life magazine, biggest magazine in the country, and, and said, we've been looking for something about Congress. This looks like a pretty good idea. Said, Let me take your lunch, and we'll talk about it later. So we went to some French restaurant, had wine and all this stuff. Came back about 3 o'clock, and he vanished, came back again, and then offered us more money than either one of us made in a year. If we would then agree to get the photographer to go into the closet, take pictures of all this stuff. And, and we were both knocked over. And, and then he said, well, I'll get your car, go out to the airport. And we didn't want to say we came by bus. <laughs> So we said, no, we want to walk around and think about it. And, and uh, Life magazine uh, was going to publish it. Don was working for the night newspapers. And it was 1960, and I'd already published it. So I worked out my first deal with the Post. This is before Bradley. Uh, and, and we got a desk in the newsroom because the Knights wanted to write a running story to go with it. Um, so it came out in Life magazine, and then we wrote a series that was published in night newspapers and, and the Washington Post, and the first series I ever wrote in the Post. So I'm going to try to ask you the same question in a different way. This is the, the, the negative uh, version of the same. Instead of asking you which national security reporters are doing it right, I'm going to ask you which national security stories you have read in the last several years that you look at and say, that was irresponsible to publish. Keep names out of it. Uh, I'm not looking for dish on anybody. But, but you're describing a very different attitude, a very different sense of responsibility on the part of the national security journalist from what most national security journalists would, would say is their responsibility. It follows if those distinctions are meaningful that there are certain stories that a bunch of people are publishing that you would look at, you would get that leak and say, this has no business in, in the Washington Post. I'm not going to write this story. So what's, wh wh what are some stories that you've looked at and said, in the this is not kosher? In the midst of uh, the run-up to Iraq, the Washington Post published a story about how... Um, Saddam Hussein was sending uh, poisonous material through Turkey right at the time of the, of the London uh, attacks. And uh, they had, the reporter had called CIA to, uh, because his information was the uh, CIA knew about it. And uh, somebody at CIA called me up and said, you know, your colleague is saying this, and, you know, and it's just a wrong story. It didn't happen. 
Um, and we still published it. And it was wrong. And it was a, a f it, it turned out that the source was a DIA person who, because he didn't want to be identified, claimed it came from CIA. Um, I mean, you don't do those things. I, I still feel strongly about uh, the Ryzen story because despite the fact that uh, the source has been convicted, that people testified the stories weren't true, the New York Times has yet to, to say their story was wrong. They turned it, they didn't publish it the first time Ryzen came up with it. Uh, Condi Rice talked them out of publishing it. Then it came out in the book and they published it. And, and it was wrong. If Edward Snowden had come to you instead of Glenn Greenwald, Laura Poitras, and, uh, and, and Bart Gelman, what would have happened? Well, in the first place, um, I have a story that goes with that, but you won't believe it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Try us. <laughs> I think the very first story they published, if Edward Snowden's idea was to, to make people aware of what was going on, uh, and that story was put in, I understood it in some context, I would have seen that story. But 50,000 documents, give me a break. If he wanted to prove something was wrong, he could have stopped right there. Because a lot of the other stuff that was published was serious and, and did harm national security. I mean, I can still remember as a kid, if you can believe it, uh, Cy Hirsch and I used to go out get asked to speak at, at uh, big armed forces groups. I think I've always tried to speak to as many groups as I can, because they all it used to be when I worked Fulbright, you left winger. I mean, I'm a Democrat. Everybody knows I'm a Democrat. Um, and uh, military people always say, you know, you're publishing classified information. Don't you think about it? And I, I think you have to get into those discussions. Press people should. And defend what we're doing. Because uh, we don't steal documents. This is my favorite line. I don't know a journalist who ever stole a document and published it. Somebody gave it to us. And somebody who had authority to get it. And so the real problem of keeping things classified, besides not classifying everything, is to, to make sure people understand who have access, they shouldn't be giving serious secrets away. But we should be serious about what we publish. The essay is Reflections on Secrecy and the Press from a Life in Journalism. It is available on Hoover's website. It is available out there in this lovely printed form. And you can find it on Lawfare. Walter, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. 
I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.